0: Well, good morning, and again, welcome to Grumlaw. We are so, uh, honestly, genuinely thankful that you are here today, particularly if this is your first time with us. Uh, Every single week, we have lots of new people that come walking through our doors, and we certainly do not take that for granted. We know that even as adults, it can feel a little intimidating to walk into a new place, but we're so glad that you kind of overcame those fears and you decided to show up here today. So, honestly, thanks for making Grumlaw a part of your week. As you've probably already figured out, we are in this series right now called "Hagahoo." In fact, today, we are entering into part two of this series. Uh, and it's actually the final part of this series, which means if you weren't here last week, you missed half the series. So how about that? It's like total mind blow. Uh, but have no fear. You can always go to Grumlaw.com slash messages. Get yourself caught up there. You can either uh, watch or listen to the messages there. You can also find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. So many of you were able to track this stuff do take advantage of this, but that's kind of our charge to you. If this is the place that you show up to every week, and on those occasions when you're not able to be here on Sunday morning, our hope is that you go there and you catch yourself up. In fact, we hope that this becomes such a part of your life that when you're not able to be here certain Sundays of the year, it feels like something's missing and that kind of void will drive you there and and you'll catch yourself up there. Now, if you weren't here last week, the premise for this series is, is pretty simple. Uh, we're calling this thing Haggahu because there's this book that we find in the Bible, uh, specifically in the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible. It's the half of the Bible that documents a bunch of stuff that happened before Jesus ever stepped foot on earth. Uh, and there's this book called Haggai. And, and we kind of hypothesize that a lot of you that are sitting here had probably never heard of Haggai before. And we don't say that to make you feel bad. In fact, the person to your left or the person to your right, they probably hadn't heard of it either. But we find it right near the end of the Old Testament, it's sandwiched between between two other books that you may or may not have heard of before uh, called Zephaniah and Zechariah. Again, I'm not making this stuff. These are actually real books that you find there. You can open it up and, and find that stuff for yourself there. Haggai is only two chapters long and hence why we're only taking a, a couple of weeks to go through it. But to kind of give you the 5,000-foot view at what's going on At this point in history, I want to give you a little context of this event, this story that we're going to be taking a look at. Now, a lot of people can can be really skeptical uh, about the Bible in and of itself because they feel like, okay, maybe it's just fiction. How do we know that this stuff actually happened? Obviously, the stories that we are driving uh, and we're pulling out of here for this series, uh, they're documented up for us in, again, this book that we refer to as the Bible, but it's substantiated, specifically this book of Haggai, by so much secular literature. We know that these are actually real historical events here that happen in the book of Haggai. So take you back to about 500 BC are the events that we see recorded here in in the book of Haggai. I'm actually going to take you even a little bit further back to give you a better context to about 587 BC. There's this king that that was really the most dominant king, most ruthless ruler in the entire ancient world at this point by the the name of Nebuchadnezzar. We learned a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar in the last series that we were in. And Nebuchadnezzar, what he would do, he kind of had this MO for going into new areas and his goal was to conquer the entire ancient world. And in fact, he was doing a pretty incredible job at doing that. He had such a big and powerful army that if he kind of pointed to you on the map and he said, that's the next place I'm going to take over, he did it. He pretty much always won. So about 587 BC, he decides that the next area he wants to take over is Israel and specifically the capital city of Jerusalem. And, and true to form and how he always would do, he goes in with his army, they ransack the entire place, they destroy everything completely run over everything. They kill a lot of the people. Some of the people, they take them back as slaves. And then a very select group of people, the brightest, the prettiest, the best educated people, he takes them back to the capital city of Babylon and he kind of indoctrinates this, them in this program where slowly but surely over like a three-year period, they become kind of Babylonian through and through. Well, fast forward now to about 500 B.C. and Nebuchadnezzar is no longer in charge. In fact, the new guy in charge is a guy by the name of Darius. And Darius is looking at the capital city of Babylon going, okay, they there's a lot of people here that aren't necessarily from Babylon in fact I, I know what happened here Nebuchadnezzar brought a bunch of you here and so if you want to he was a little bit more gracious than Nebuchadnezzar he says if you want to you can go back to where you were once from you can go back to where your forefathers and your parents and your grandparents grew up more power to you but he warns them. he says to the Israelites "Hey, remember though he destroyed that place What it used to look like before you left, it is completely lies in ruins. It is completely destroyed. And so a small percentage of those Israelites decide to take them up on that offer. About 50,000 of them at about 500 BC decide to go back to Israel and begin rebuilding the city. And over about a 15-year period, they make some pretty incredible progress. I mean, just imagine, like, coming back to Grand Blanc one day, and everything was a pile of rubble. There were no buildings left, and there was nothing. I mean, I mean, kind of a daunting task, right? But over a 15-year period, they're doing a pretty good job. And this is about the time we hear about this guy named Haggai. Now, Haggai was a prophet, and prophets, very simply put, were people that spoke on behalf of God. And Haggai comes rolling into the city, and he's like, Dang, 15 years? You guys are doing a pretty good job. I mean, their houses look immaculate. You know, they started to build like the marketplace. Everything's looking pretty good, but they can't help but notice that the temple, a place that we would probably commonly refer to as a church, still lies in ruins. They haven't done a thing to the temple. And he goes, that's weird. And so he starts calling people out. He says, hey, let me get this straight. You guys have some incredible houses at this point. I mean, you got like a house and a pool house and a pool, and you got like a pool boy working for you. Like you got a lot of sweet stuff going on here. But you haven't had any time to begin working on the temple? And they're all looking at him. They have a lot of excuses. They go, no, 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 Haggai, you don't understand. We've been really, really busy. We're going to get to that eventually. I mean, we just haven't had time to get to it yet. And Haggai's not buying. He's going, no, no, I I don't think that's the case. I think this is a simple issue of priorities. Where are your priorities? And that's what we focused on last week. Where is God on your priority list? Now we know that all of you find yourselves at kind of different points in this faith journey. Some of you here just exploring things for the first time. Some of you maybe have stepped away from church for a big chunk of your life and now you're back. But we ask that question, okay, honestly, right now in your life, where is God on your priority list? And so many of us, particularly those of us that go to church every single week, we are quick to say that God is number one. He's absolutely at the top of our priority list. However, if we were to look at our actions If we were to look at our lives, it might tell a very different story. See, here's the truth that a lot of us maybe don't like to hear. Everyone has time for God. And we can get defensive about that because like, no, 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 you don't understand. I am really, really busy. You don't know what my work life is like. You don't know what my home life is like. I hear so many parents tell me, you don't know what it's like having a teenager. And those same parents would have told you that. You don't know what it's like having an elementary school age kid. I'm so busy. I have zero margin in my life. No, you have time for God. But do you have time for God and keep living the life that you want to keep living? Probably not. Which means that we all have a decision to make. Me. Or God? Me or God? Now our hope is is that over time that that all of you pick God. And again, I know that's not an overnight process. I know that it's in fact just that. It is a process. And all of you, again, you find yourselves at different points kind of on this whole faith journey. But our hope is, is that over time you do eventually pick God, much like the Israelites. And there's kind of this happy ending to this story. A lot of times when we see these prophets come in, again, in the Old Testament, New Testament, throughout Scripture... They call people out for their actions, and people get defensive. They push them away, but they don't do this to Haggai. They're like, okay, you're right. God isn't at the top of our priority list. We have not been placing him number one in our lives. You're absolutely correct, and they begin to get to work. They start rebuilding the temple. They really kind of shift their priorities and make sure that God is at the top. But as we peer into the second chapter of this book, and again, it's only two chapters long, we see that they're starting to get frustrated, they're working their tails off and they're having that moment where after working really hard, at the end of the day, they're going, that's it? That's all we got done? Not to mention, and I love that scripture gives us this detail. There's these grandparents, these older people that, that were there before the temple got destroyed. They went to Babylon and now they're back and they're kind of with these younger people that are working their tails off. And these older people are looking at them going, you know, this just doesn't look very good. And they're like, yeah, no crap. We know it doesn't look very good. You better zip your lip. you can go to the old folks home. Like, be quiet. We don't want to hear this. But they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Even if you built it according to plan, even if you built this thing perfectly according to that blueprint that you have sitting in front of you, it still would not look half as good as it did before Nebuchadnezzar and his army ran it over. And we've all experienced moments like this in our lives where, where, where we really tried really hard on something and it just didn't really turn out the way that we were maybe hoping. Uh, as I was preparing for this, it reminded me of these pictures, these nailed it pictures. Go ahead and put that first up one up there. Uh, you see... You see something on Pinterest, wives, a lot of you ladies out there are guilty of this, uh, or, or you see something on Instagram or social media, you know, whatever, and you're like, I could do that, even though you haven't had a crafty bone in your body since the day you came out of the womb, but you suddenly decide that you're a baker. And, and again, this is more what your finished product looks like, and you just throw them in the garbage because it would be humiliating to actually serve that to anyone. We have another one here. Yeah, go to the next one. Or, or we do these sorts of things. What? <laughs> I was laughing so hard as I was finding these. I definitely got distracted for like two hours. Why do we do this to our kids? I mean, God forbid we just photograph our children in their native habitat as they like play with their toys and like having fun with their siblings. No, we have to do these weird things or Andrew mentioned this last week. We take them out to a field because that's what we do with our families. We go to grassy fields and put on matching sweaters. All right, I think we have one more for you. Look at that one. SpongeBob. Uh, Marcos, our tech director, commented that Sp- Spongebob looks like he had a rough evening last night. Yeah, he <laughs> had a little too much to drink. But again, we've experienced this before. We work so hard at something, and then it gets done, and we're like, that is not what I had in mind. And maybe last week, and I don't want to undermine this, maybe last week was a big week for you. You took an honest look at your priorities, and you're like, you know what? You're right. I say God's at the top of my priority list, and, and, and he's, just, he's just not and you made some tangible changes to the way that you were living your, your life this past week, you, you are actually changing the way you live to make sure that over time, God does end up at the top of your priority list. But eventually, you are going to get to a point, and I don't say this to be Debbie Downer, this is just reality. If, if you make that decision to put your faith in Jesus, if you decide to put God at the top of your priority list, eventually, you will get to a point, point. and maybe some of you are here right now, much like the Israelites where you are frustrated, you don't have that same excitement that you had last week, that you had last month, that you had last year. You you go to work on Monday and that excitement that you were feeling in your seat sitting here on Sunday, it's kind of gone. And you suddenly don't feel as motivated. And eventually you start asking yourself this question. You might not put it in such blunt terms, but we ask this question. We ask, is God enough? Is God enough? um i'd see this working in camp ministry for years and years pretty much every christian camp they all operate the same and they kind of outline the shell of the week and at the end of the week it kind of all culminates on that last evening where we give kids an opportunity to kind of put their faith in jesus take some tangible step you know kind of the sinner's prayer and there's no like power necessarily in the in saying these exact words you have to say it just like this but you know you, you like to attach something to it raise your hand Stand up where you're at, come forward. You know, the altar call for those of you that grew up in kind of old school churches. And every camp operates the exact same way. Every single Christian camp. You give those kids the opportunity at the end of the week to put their faith in Jesus, to kind of put something behind all these things that they were hearing for the entire week. And our camp was no different. And we would do that at the end of every single week throughout the summer. We had 10, 10 weeks of camp. At the end of every single week, you give these kids the opportunity to raise their hand and put their faith in Jesus for the first time. And I mean, we could not have been more clear about for the first time, but wouldn't you know it, we would see these kids that would come back summer after summer after summer. In fact, some kids would come like three or four weeks in a summer. You knew their parents didn't really like them very much. You know, and so you see these kids every single week. And we would give that invitation. We'd say, okay, put your, put your hand up if you want to put your faith in Jesus for the first time. And it was an emotional moment because like every single week you'd see 50% of the crowd put their hand up. But you couldn't help but notice that, Lisa, you've been putting your hand up for the last three years. First time. Little Tommy's been putting his hand up every single week since the day he came to this camp. Are we not explaining this well? And we as a staff would kind of laugh about that. We're like, Johnny has now put his faith in Jesus for the first time eight times. You know, we kind of like chuckle about that. But honestly, I get it. I totally get it. Because here, when they're at camp with us, that they're around other kids that are also kind of taking these steps towards God, they're moving in the same direction. They have all these counselors, all these college-age guys and girls that they look up to in such a big way, right? And and they're like, that's exactly what I want to be like when I grow up. In fact, every single kid, when you pull them away from their week at camp, they're like, what do you want to do for a living? I want to work at a camp, like universally. But then they leave, and they go back into the real world. They get back to school. They get back with their group of friends and that same zeal and that same excitement that they had at camp, it suddenly wears off and suddenly there's not that 18-year-old guy or that 18-year-old girl that's standing next to them encouraging them and pushing them along the way. And before they know it, usually, unfortunately so, within like a week, they're right back to the way that they were living. Same sins, same mistakes, same bad habits. And again, I'd see these kids come back summer after summer and say, what are you struggling with? What are some issues that are going on in your life? It's the exact same stuff that they were wrestling with the year before. Is God enough? Maybe some of you, you've been working super hard at your marriage. I mean, you know things aren't going in a great direction, so you start going to counseling, and you start reprioritizing things. You start having those tough conversations that you used to neglect, that you used to just kind of pack away deep inside. But you take a step back from your marriage and and it doesn't really actually seem like things are getting all that much better. Maybe some of you, you were hanging out with a certain group of people and you're like, that's not the direction that I want to be going. And so you change. You're like, okay, I'm not going to spend as much time with those people. Wouldn't you know it, come Friday evening, you kind of miss them. Even though you know that's not what is best for your life. I mean, you really have completely reprioritized your life and you can honestly say that God is at the top. See, see, the Israelites were promised by God. I mean, God promised them, hey, if you shift your priorities, if you repent, if you actually place me at the top and you start rebuilding the temple, then things will get better. Because we read the book of Haggai that their crops still aren't growing, and they still don't seem to have enough money. And the temple, as they look at it, it's like, we're not making any progress. It still looks terrible. And so what do they do? They they do what a lot of us do in those situations. They they stop. They stop working. They they stop being obedient. And this is really kind of the problem of all this. It's it's a conditional obedience to God. I'll obey you, God, as long as I like the results. It is a results-based faith. It reminds me of what I like to refer to as hipster parenting. I don't expect you to know what that is because I made it up. But it seems to me... Uh, and I don't really think I'm going on a limb, but I am going to sound like a grumpy old curmudgeon when I say this. It seems to me that parenting isn't getting better. Uh, It seems like it might be kind of on the decline. And I say that because I spend a a lot of time around other families and young children. And, you know, I'll be in a grocery store and there'll be some little kid, you know, on the floor, just going berserk, like throwing a complete fit. And the parent is over the top of them going, I mean, just pleading, like, I will do anything to get you to stop doing this. I will give you candy. We can go purchase more ice cream. I will do anything. Just stop embarrassing me right now. And so the parent says, okay, I'll buy you Skittles. And just like that, it gets turned off. Kids back in the cart, happy as can be. Now, maybe I grew up in a very traditional environment. That that was not me growing up. Uh, I I never got a reward for behaving in the grocery store. I, I did things because mom and dad told me to do so. And a lot of times I did things because there was this fear in the back of my head that, I might get a nice little firm slap on the old behind. I did things because mom and dad told me to do things. I did things out of obedience. I never went back to my room as an eight-year-old kid and thought, huh, are mom and dad enough? Is this worth it? You know, I, I just don't feel like I'm getting anything out of this deal. And that sounds ridiculous, but that is exactly what so many of us do with God. In fact, I would almost guarantee that some of you are sitting here today. That is your story. You walked away from God because you didn't feel like God was holding up his end of the bargain. You walked away from God because you didn't feel like you were getting your share. You have answered that question of is God enough with a firm no because you, and you might not want to admit this, you have a conditional obedience to God. But, but this is worth considering. God does not give us options to consider. If you sit here today, and this is kind of a hard truth, but you call yourself a Jesus follower, he commands us to obey. We, we talked about this last week. The very essence of being a Jesus follower lies in the, this idea of denying yourself, giving up your own way, and following God. Obedience actually becomes a prerequisite. This is a huge shift in thinking. We don't obey so that God will bless us, so that God will give us something. We obey because we love him. My wife's sitting here in the front row. I, I don't listen to my wife. I don't obey my wife hoping that she's gonna go out and get me a $10 Starbucks gift card. I, I, I don't listen to the, wife's, the the things that my wife has to say to me hoping that I am going to get something out of this deal. I didn't, I didn't obey my parents growing up hoping that I was going to get something. To this day, if my parents call me up and they ask a favor, they say, hey, Shishay, will you come over and help us move this piece of furniture? I don't go, what's in it for me? (laughs) I do it because I love my parents. We obey because we love him. It's the opposite of this conditional obedience. Now, the Israelites, as we we look at this story here in in the book of Haggai, uh, they're getting frustrated. They aren't seeing the fruits of their labor. They're working their tails off and things aren't going well. God doesn't seem to be rewarding them as they see that they should be rewarded for all of their hard work. And so we see God offer them some encouragement. He reminds them of a couple things. He says this, he says, be strong. I mean, this is literally the words of God. How crazy is that? Be strong, all you people still left in the land and now get to work. It's like, come on, let's do this. For I am with you. I mean, that's powerful, right? I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, God's with us. It's the churchiest thing I have ever heard in my life. I am with you. What does that actually mean? He continues. He says, my spirit remains among you. Sounds nice, right? My spirit's among you. Just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid. He's going, I've been remarkably consistent with this. I have been promising you the, the same thing all along. It's always been the same promise, I will be with you. Is that good enough? Is God enough? God promises every single one of us, specifically you, that when you do what is right in his eyes, it will work out better for you. But here's the million dollar question that every single person has circling around in their heads that we all wonder. When? When? When is that going to happen? When is it going to get better? When are we going to get those rewards that God seems to so frequently allude to, that God so frequently seems to talk about? And, and you guys, I'm telling you because I'm in the same boat, we hate this answer, but it's the truth. We don't know. It's his timing. And we hate that answer because we hate not knowing. We hate not knowing what the light is at the end of the tunnel. We want something that's more tangible. We, we want something that's more concrete. We want something that's more definitive. But, but think about this. Is that, you know, kind of maybe goes through your head. What is more concrete than a promise from God? I mean, the, the, the God that, that has the very hairs on your head numbered, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, And so the question again is, is God enough? Years ago, um, I I met a family um, and uh, they were kind of just living the American dream. Things were going pretty well in their lives. And they they went on a couple of mission trips. And after going on those mission trips, uh, they began to feel this nudge like, hey, maybe we should be one of those weirdo families that sells everything and just does this like full time. Like we're gonna sell everything and we're gonna go to another country. Like we're gonna be one of those drop everything, become missionary type families. And they prayed about that, and they, they felt like they were being led in that direction. And so they, they literally quit their jobs, sell everything, and moved to South America. And they're like, okay, we're, we're going to begin living the, kind of this missionary life. Uh, but once they got there, they figured out after a couple months of being there that that excitement that they had for a week, two weeks at a time while they're on like, kind of a short-term mission trip, it, it kind of went away. And it felt more like a job and it felt like more of a grind and it never really got easier. And so fast forward a couple years after they're there, it, it's still like this thing that they were just like, oh, okay, like this isn't as fun and exciting as we thought it was going to be. And so they pray about it and they make this decision and they feel like, okay, maybe we're supposed to go back to America. And so they come back to America and they were kind of baffled that, that their jobs weren't handed back to them on a silver platter. It was a difficult thing to go out and, and, and find new jobs at new companies. And their kids had a pretty difficult job transitioning. Anyway, we fast forward now to present day and, and they're not really even involved in the local church. You, you would look at their lives and you would say that there's not really any fruit here to speak of. And I think about stories like that and I'm like, how sad is that? That is a family that at one time took a pretty bold step to sell everything, go to a foreign country where they knew no one, and and, and live, again, kind of live this Christian dream. But we see that so often. People seem aggravated that God has not done enough for them. They haven't received their reward in a timely manner. I've done X for you, God, so you better do Y for me. And so many people walk away from God So many people walk away from their faith. So many people walk away from the church because God hasn't given them what they feel they deserve and the time that they have allotted. But the promise has always been the same. God will be with you. What do you get when you follow God? You get him. God's promise to you is God. God. The reward for following God is is himself. And you have to ask yourself, is that enough? And and this is precisely how we see people maintain their faith in such difficult circumstances. It's why we see people all around the world that are willing to die for their faith. Uh, Friends of mine, I met met them a couple of years ago. Uh, They started coming to the church that I previously had the opportunity to. Uh, to serve at and they, and they kind of came out of nowhere and through the grapevine we actually heard that, that he used to be a pastor and he actually started intentionally coaching and mentoring me uh, as we were preparing to you know plant this church and we didn't even know where or when it was going to be at that point but we just knew eventually that we were going to start, start a church and uh, so he starts kind of really tangibly giving me like this, this information and really helping me along and think through things that I really wasn't thinking through uh, and after I gotten to know him you know and it, it took quite a while uh, he shared with me Um, that just a couple of of years earlier, they had lost their oldest daughter uh, very unexpectedly in in a car accident. She was on her way to swim practice and uh, got hit by another vehicle, and just like that, uh, their daughter was gone. And I remember hearing that at the time. We were sitting at a Leo's Coney Island, and I just started crying. And It hit me, I think, especially hard because it was shortly after my wife and I had had our first child who was a daughter, our daughter Logan, and, and I was just thinking about that. Like, I can't imagine... You know, your child just overnight, just boom, gone, just taken away from you. And what particularly took me aback by that was that him and his wife always talked. I mean, it was on the tip of their tongue in virtually every conversation you had with them. They would always talk about the goodness of God. They would always talk about how good God had been to them. You know, from the world's standpoint, when they lost their daughter, that should have been it. They should have abandoned God. If they had a conditional obedience to God, it would have been game over. And here's the truth. They still don't understand why. They have no idea. I know that they still wrestle with that question, with the why, but the promise that God will be with you for this family was enough. We see this actually in, in, in Luke chapter 10. Luke is one of the four books that documents Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. In, in, in one of these events here in Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus is hanging out with his 12 disciples, and he gets to this point where, you know, these 12 disciples, these are guys he spent every, you know, waking moment with. He had invested so much time with them at this point, at the 10th chapter of Luke. And he says, okay, you know what? You guys are gonna have a little test run. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm really gonna be gone eventually. I mean, they're gonna kill me. I know you think I'm making that stuff up. They're gonna kill me. I'm gonna rise from the dead, and then I'm going back to heaven. And then, You guys are going to be left to kind of carry on this message to the ends of the earth. So here's a little test run. So go out and put into practice all this stuff that I have taught you. And so they go out. They're a little nervous, but they come back after being out for a while. You know, Jesus isn't with them. And they're like, Jesus, you're not going to believe it. Things are going so well. We're healing people. People that can't see, you know, suddenly, boom, we give them eyesight. We pretty much say anything in your name and it works. And the thing that they were most excited about, they go, Jesus, even the demons... Even the demons obey us. Even the demons listen to us. We, 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 we cast out demons in your name all the time and it actually works. And Jesus, interestingly enough, looks at them and he says, hey, that's great, but don't rejoice that the demons obey you. Rejoice instead that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that I Am with you. He's like, listen, that, that, that's great that that is all happening, but do not look for joy in circumstances because as we all know, circumstances change. And those same demons that are listening to you right now, they might not tomorrow. And those same people that are embracing what you're selling right now, they might not tomorrow. Rejoice because I am with you. Rejoice because God sent his one and his only son to die for you. Rejoice that God created a way back to him. We we forget that all the time. He, He didn't have to do that. When we messed up, when we sinned, when we walked away from him, we've all done that. He could have very well just hung out an order sign on earth and walked away, but he devised a way for each of us to be brought back to him, that we could still be called righteous, which is just a really churchy word for saying that we can get a right standing with him. Rejoice that God so desperately wants a relationship with you that he devises ways for you to be brought back to him. You know th- this is kind of an uncomfortable thing that like it's not super popular to talk about in, in-, in church necessarily but you guys we-, we deserve death we deserve to be punished we-, we we deserve to be eternally separated from our heavenly father but God cares so much about us that again he created a way he devised a way That we could still have relationship with him. It is completely undeserved. And I'm telling you, that is why I love him. that, That is why I will go to my grave doing everything in my power to be obedient to him. That when he calls, that when he asks me to do something, I leap, I jump. Not because I'm hoping to get something out of it, but because again, I love him. When I follow God, I get God. I get a relationship with my heavenly father, my creator, who again has the hairs on your head numbered, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who loves you so much that he created a way back to him. I feel like that's a pretty incredible deal, but yet people all the time will ask, What else? I mean, that sounds nice, but is there anything else? I mean, what else do I get out of that? And as I've gotten older, and as I just have more experience in in these types of roles, um, I've kind of come to the conclusion that that is squarely an American Western issue. Because you go to other countries, and I've done it, you, you go to these third world countries to people that don't have very much, and you tell them about Jesus, Tell them there's a God that's out there that that loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them. And they hang on every word that you have to say. They're looking at you like, where in the heck do I sign up for this? How has nobody told me about this yet? It's only in America and Western society where you tell them about the goodness of God and how much he cares for you, specifically you, that we have the audacity to look at God and say, that. sounds all right maybe let me mull it over for a little bit let me think about it because we selfishly want a God who will give us tangible rewards for following him people want foolishly a conditional God okay God if I follow you will my marriage get better if I follow you will my relationship with my son will my relationship with my daughter get better. If I follow you will suddenly this person be healed of their sickness. If I follow you will all my financial problems suddenly go away. And you know what I want to answer yes to all of those things and oftentimes they happen to go hand in hand. But that is not what God promises. He promises that he will be with you. There's no guarantee of earthly blessings. And and I just want to make this really, really clear and drive this point home. And, this maybe isn't what some of you want to hear, but if you are showing up here on a weekly basis, hoping that by being here and sitting in that seat, that that if you do this, then God will give you that, whatever that is in your mind, then just stop, because again, he doesn't promise any of that. He promises that he will be with you, and over time it will absolutely work out best for you, and you might have to wait a week, you might have to wait a month, you might have to wait a year, you might have to wait until eternity to experience that, but you're just gonna have to trust God. You have To trust that he is true to his promise. And if you're sitting here, and okay, I I know that some of you, you're you're processing this, you're thinking about this, and, and you're going, okay, I don't really know if the benefits outweigh the risk. Let's consider the alternative, which is you. And this is gonna sound pretty brutal, but the same is true for myself. So I'm looking at myself in the mirror. You can't get you right. You all the time make decisions, where almost immediately after making that decision, you go, what was that? What the heck did I do that for? Come on, let's be honest about ourselves. You frequently don't have your best interest in mind. And the reality is, I think you know that, because otherwise you probably wouldn't be sitting in this seat today. Because you've tried life without God and you have experienced that sobering truth that it just doesn't work. That there still seems to be that void. There's something missing. I love this quote. It says, there's a God-shaped vacuum, void, in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. It's not an accident that all of that other stuff falls short. In other words, until your heart is right with God, everything that you do is going to feel fleeting. It is going to be temporary. It will fall flat. It will not last. God continues talking to the Israelites and he says, everything they do and everything they offer is defiled by their sin. Look what was happening to you before you began to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. When you hoped for a 20 bushel crop, you harvested only 10. When you expected to draw 50 gallons from the wine press, you found only 20. I sent, so this is God talking, I sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you worked so hard to produce, at which point all the Israelites are looking at each other going, are you kidding me? That's why this wasn't working out? Even so, even so, you refused to return to me says the Lord. God isn't punishing them. He's trying to restore them. He's not trying to pay them back. He is trying to win them back. He's demonstrating this very simple principle that the Israelites along with a lot of us have a difficult time understanding that disobedience leads or that obedience leads to contentment. Obey, obedience leads to satisfaction to fulfillment. Disobedience leads to frustration. Disobedience leads to those moments where you go, woe is me and God's just picking on me. Or or maybe you look at this and you think, okay, well, I'm not really disobedient. It's more disregard, or maybe I'm just kind of ignoring God. Regardless, the results are the same. I've shared a little bit about this. When I was in high school, I I made a lot of pretty awful decisions and was just like your prototypical pastor's kid that just went out and, and caused my parents a lot, a lot of grief And at the time, I remember that there were so many nights, there were so many afternoons driving home from places where I would think, God's picking on me. I always get caught. I can't get away with anything. I mean, my friends do this stuff all the time. How come they never get caught? Now, as I've gotten a little bit older and I reflect on this a little bit, one, I realized that I got away with more than I probably realized at the time. But two, I look back at that God wasn't trying to punish me. I believe this in all my heart. He was trying to restore me. He was trying to win me back. He was trying to win the Israelites back. And the same could be said for your life. And when we think about that, when we think about what what God did for each of us on that cross when he sent his one and his only son for us, this question can be a pretty profound moment for us. If God did not spare his own son, do you really think that that is off limits? He already gave his one and his only son. Do you really think your health and your wealth and your friendships and your relationships and your job and your career, do you really think whatever that is for you, do you really think that is off limits? He who did not spare his own son, what might he not spare? Not to pay you back, but to win you back. I've said this many, many times and I'm gonna keep saying it. God really does want what is best for you. God absolutely has your best interest in mind and he devises ways, again, to win you back. And yes, I absolutely believe that what we sometimes perceive as negative situations can be part of those plans. In 2 Samuel, it says, all of us must die eventually. Hopefully that's not news to you. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, man, the the power of this cannot be overstated. He devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. How incredible is that? that? That your creator knows you by name that he doesn't think about you in broad strokes, just like, okay, all people. No, he thinks about you specifically and actively comes up with ways to bring you back to him. That is how desperately he longs for a relationship with you. More than anything else, God wants your heart. But here's the hard truth as we see at the end of Haggai. Even so, With all that being said, with all that as the backdrop, with all the knowledge that you have in your head, you refused to return to me. With all that being said, most people still turn down God. When you follow God, what do you get? You get the greatest gift of all. You get God himself. That's the promise. But you have to decide, is God enough? And if you're sitting here today and I know we're not all there. Again, we're all at different points kind of in this whole faith journey. But if you find yourself even kind of leaning towards yes, like, all right, I still have a lot of questions, but but yeah, is God enough? Yeah, I, I think the answer is yes. Then the greatest evidence of a right heart with God is obedience to God. God wants more, believe it or not, than you just showing up here once a week. God wants more than you just occasionally reading your Bible out of obligation. He wants more than you just dropping a 20 into a bucket. He wants more, believe it or not, than you even showing up here and and serving each week. And a lot of you do that. God wanted more than a nice temple. He wants and he longs for your heart. He wants all of us devoted and obedient to him. We obey because we love Him. We obey because His promise is enough. I get this question more than ever in, in my role as a pastor. Uh, people ask me, like, "Okay, what's the point of following God? I mean, is it really is it really worth it? Okay, what what do I get out of it if if I follow God?" And the truth is, is that we stop asking those questions when we actually have a relationship with him, when we are obedient to him, because we know, we know that he's true to his promise, and we get the greatest reward of all, God himself. The God that, again, has the hairs on your head numbered, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, the God that cares so much about you, specifically you. That he devised, and he created a way to be brought back to him through his son. (laughs) That's a love that we'll never be able to fully comprehend.